0: Welcome to Thirty Five West. I'm Ryan Berg, a senior fellow in the Americas Program at CSIS, and the host of the Thirty Five West podcast. Look how professional, the Mexican! The but government. are we ready? Oh, I don't. reform friends in Argentina, right. and that's what happened. No
1: role at all in the NAFTA negotiations.
0: Nicaragua's descent in authoritarianism has had far-reaching humanitarian, economic, and diplomatic consequences. One lesser understood dimension of this crisis has been the growing reliance of the Ortega-Murillo regime on extra-hemispheric authoritarian states to help cement its hold on power in the face of both international and domestic pressures. In particular, Russia, China, and Iran have all made overtures to Managua, threatening to embolden the regime there and potentially sow instability on the United States' doorstep. This week, we are joined by Dr. Evan Ellis, research professor of Latin American studies at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute and a non-resident senior associate with the Americas program here at CSIS. Evan joins me today to discuss the current situation in Nicaragua with a focus on the actions of extra-hemispheric actors and their engagement with the Ortega Murillo regime. In this episode, we will cover the geopolitics of not only Nicaragua's reliance on ties with fellow autocrats, but also the shifting importance of the Western Hemisphere more broadly for strategic competition. Thank you for joining us today, Evan.
1: Thanks, Ryan. It's a real pleasure for me to be with you on the program.
0: International attention on Nicaragua crested in the lead-up to the 2021 sham elections and the intense repression that surrounded these. The Ortega-Murillo regime disqualified and arrested every presidential contender from the opposition. However, the regime has not abated in its efforts to consolidate a dynastic dictatorship, as seen most recently in its invalidation of thousands of NGOs and its targeting of the Catholic Church, one of the last institutions standing as a major critic of the regime. So Evan, could you please sketch a scene setter? What have been the key developments in Nicaragua between 2021 and today? In what ways has the regime changed or intensified its repressive strategy?
1: Sure, Ryan. Happy to give the background. So following the elections, as you mentioned, where the Ortegas basically disqualified all of the viable opposition parties and and even jailed uh, seven of the the leading presidential candidates, they've really been doubling down on their efforts to shut down some of the few remaining places where civic expression and and really thus opposition to them could occur. That's included organizations that help the community. It's included the press. It's included the church, as you mentioned, and, and even some private businesses. So since the election, for example, the Ortega regime has shut down, by my count, about 310 non-governmental organizations, including actually acting against about 93 of those just this past June. Now, with respect to the press, of course, they had already moved against the more conservative opposition, for example, El Confidencial, back in 2018, and then against Nicaragua's most important newspaper, La Prensa, which actually, ironically, was forced to shut down its print version back in 2021 for, for lack of paper. But then in July, they actually went farther and ransacked the homes of uh, several La Repensa reporters, which uh, actually caused at least one of them to flee the country. Now, in recent weeks, uh, the Ortegas have gone beyond even that, and they've shut down four Nicaraguan uh, cable channels and about 11 uh, radio stations, including one uh, Radio San Carlos, which was really an iconic radio station that had been around for, for years and years. Now, one of Ortega's most striking moves for me has been also to ratchet up the oppression against the Catholic Church, which you mentioned. Now, as you know, um, historically, the church has been a pillar of Nicaraguan society, but it's also been a space where priests uh, could guide the political consciousness of their parishioners, and that, of course, has has troubled the, the Ortegas. So just this past weekend, regime actually arrested uh, Catholic uh, Bishop Rolando Alvarez. Alvarez had been a critic of the regime for some time, and security forces had actually essentially trapped him in his residence in Matagalpa in order to prevent him from holding public mass. But for me, these types of actions have really also been doubly divisive for Nicaraguans because uh, higher levels of the Catholic Church and and even some of the evangelical churches that have been very important in the country have been relatively restrained in, in speaking out about what's been going on. Now, beyond that, the Ortega regime has also continued to clamp down on the business sector. So, for example, uh, the president and, his, uh, and the vice president of Nicaragua's main business organization, COSEP, have both been imprisoned uh, along with uh, several others. As a matter of fact, actually, a, a Nicaraguan businessman who happens to be a friend of mine just last week uh, literally uh, let me know that his properties and his inventory were actually seized by the Ortegas without any explanation, effectively ruining him in, in his business. Now, many of the people who are still doing business in Nicaragua, what I've seen is they tend to keep their heads down in the hope that the Ortegas will leave them alone, or frankly, worse yet, some of them enrich themselves by collaborating with the regime in one way or another. Now, for me, switching gears a little, the most recent focus of the Ortegas' consolidation of political power has been on the upcoming municipal elections that are going to be held this November. So, as you may recall, in the previous local elections, which were held in 2017, um, the Sandinistas really ran away with the rigged elections. They they won about 135 of the 153 municipalities. Now, this July, they actually moved to seize control by force of five municipalities that they had not won in 2017. They actually lost them to a small opposition party uh, called um, Ciudadanos para la Libertad. But now they said that since this party had been disqualified in 2021 in the presidential election, now those people who had been elected under that party banner no longer had the right to represent the the people. Now, I should also mention that The way we think about uh, opposing the Ortega is that despite all of these sanctions on Ortega-affiliated elites, uh, both by the U.S. and the Europeans and others, one of the difficult realities is the economic situation is ironically not putting that much pressure on them. So, for example, as the economy bounced back from COVID, it grew more than 10% in 2021. Remittances to the Nicaraguan poor were actually up by about 26%. Even the Central American Integration Bank, BICE, just authorized $382 million of new loans for Nicaraguan infrastructure projects. And then on top of that, an additional $200 million to help the government to compensate for higher fuel prices, so really taking, taking that pressure off. As a matter of fact, Nicaraguan export sectors like coffee and gold have arguably actually benefited from those increased international prices. And you could see this by the fact that, at least according to official figures, in 2021, the government and the country actually got 39% more foreign investment than it had in the previous year. Now, There is one possibility, which is that the U.S. decision to end what's called the tariff rate quota, by which we buy a certain quantity of Nicaraguan sugar at higher than market prices, uh, could put some pressure on that that critical export sector. But overall, it's looking like the Ortegas are pretty well entrenched as as we move into the second part of this year.
0: Russia has, without a doubt, been Ortega's key backer, providing everything from arms supplies and military training to food assistance and contributing buses for civilian transport. Just this month, Nicaragua participated in the 2022 International Army Games hosted by the Russian Ministry of Defense, reaffirming Managua's support for Russia's brutal and ongoing war in Ukraine. Earlier, Nicaragua passed a law permitting Russian troops on its soil, and Russian propaganda said that the country would use this law to, quote, teach the U.S. a lesson. Venezuela is often discussed as the archetypal Russian ally in the Western Hemisphere. So how is Russia's relationship with Nicaragua similar? and or different from the partnership with the Maduro regime?
1: Right, it's a great question. First of all, during the Cold War, Venezuela, that we tend to be a little bit more familiar with, was a relatively conservative country which was allied with the United States. So Venezuela's ties with Russia, including uh, its buying of about $12 billion in, in arms from it under Hugo Chavez, is something that really has only occurred uh, in the past two decades. Now, Nicaragua, on the other hand, of course, was actually the Soviet Union's key client state in Central America during the Cold War. The relationship, of course, uh, took off in 1979 when Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas seized power with the Soviet and Cuban assistance. And, of course, it continued until the Sandinistas were voted out of office in, in 1990. But it's interesting that when Ortega was voted back into power in 2007, he reached out to Russia to rebuild that relationship. So there's a certain continuity and restoration there. Uh, His was the first government actually in the region in 2008 to recognize the Russian-backed militias, which had at the time seized control of the Georgian territories of South Ossetia and Abkhazia, which really reminded Moscow that Nicaragua and its uh, friends there in Managua continued to be useful to their geopolitical ambitions. So Although the Ortegas, I would say, don't have the resources that Hugo Chavez did in Venezuela when he was oil rich to buy these large amounts of Russian military equipment, clearly that Nicaragua's legacy military forces going back to the Cold War are almost exclusively Russian. The associated relationships are really with Russia for many, many years, and the Ortegas have actually received a certain amount of new Russian military goods, um, plus some commercial items. So just to mention, uh, some of the Russian equipment, of course, as, as you alluded to, includes uh, new T-72 tanks, plus armored personnel carriers such as BMP-3s, BTR-80s, and, and Tiger-armored vehicles. Uh, they've received a Antonov A-26 military transport aircraft. They have some older uh, ZU-23 anti-aircraft guns. They have uh, recently uh, acquired a number of, of, of boats from Russia, including a class of patrol boats called Misra and two missile boats called uh, the Molina class. And then, of course, in addition to that, as, as often is discussed, uh, Russia has a, a downlink facility for its, its GLONASS, a global positioning system in the Nahaba Lagoon area in, uh, outside of, of, of Managua, as well as having established a training school for its police forces in Las Colinas neighborhood of Managua. Now, it's interesting that uh, Venezuela and Russia recently talked about setting up a GLONASS link there as well, but um, that has only begun to uh, progress. But with respect to the school, um, the FSKM, their counter-drug organization, that school opened in 2017, and it's basically been used to not only train Nicaraguan police, but also as an outreach arm for Russia to, to engage with police from other countries. In the first year alone, there was documented uh, evidence that uh, the Russians uh, used that school to train police from the Dominican Republic, from Guatemala, from El Salvador, and and even Mexico. Um, So we really haven't seen that type of of using of Venezuela in the same way for outreach to to other countries, especially given that Venezuela has been been isolated. And now on the commercial side, you can also talk about some differences. So on the one hand, in Venezuela, of course, uh, Russian oil companies such as Igor Sechens, Rosneft played a pretty key role in in pumping and buying Venezuela's oil, loaning the country billions of of dollars. Now, Nicaragua, by contrast, of course, has had relatively little commercially that Russia wants. So um, Russia has sold Nicaragua some grain um, and and some buses, uh, the majority of which actually broke down because they weren't appropriate for the Nicaraguan climate, although uh, 300 new buses were just announced in, in August. And there have actually been an announcement that Nicaragua and Russia will cooperate possibly on nuclear projects, uh, something that you did not hear about in, in Venezuela. Although, from what I can glean, this appears to really mean working with radioactive nuclear isotopes for medical purposes more than you know, some concept that Russia will you know, build a, a commercial grade nuclear reactor for, for Nicaragua.
0: Putin has threatened military escalation in the Western Hemisphere in response to U.S. support for Ukraine. How does Nicaragua feature into Russia's strategy to challenge the United States in its shared neighborhood?
1: Well, Ryan, of course, uh, Nicaragua's willingness to let Russia use it to project threats has has been going on for for quite some time, really going all the way back to uh, 2008, as we mentioned before. Uh, so, uh, for example, if you look at its track record, uh, we recall, of course, that uh, you know, back in 2008, after the recognition of South Ossetia and, and Abkhazia, uh, Nicaragua also allowed Russia to deploy nuclear-capable T-160 backfire bombers to the country. Um, and then it did so again in 2013. Indeed, actually launching from there, those, those backfire bombers actually violated the uh, Colombian airspace. In addition to that, of course, the Ortega regime has more currently supported Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, not only by not voting against Russia in international forums such as the United Nations, but also most recently announcing that it would be expanding military collaboration. Now... A lot has been said about that. Uh, And of course, uh, you had the Sandiniesis Congress's recent authorization that up to 230 Russian troops could come into the country as, as well as Russian vehicles and other things to participate in communications and training and supposedly counter drug exercises. Now, I would argue that that particular announcement has been a little bit overblown since it was really just an expanded version of what had been a a periodic authorization of Russian troops by the Nicaraguan Congress that's been going on for for more than a decade now. But but it still gives us something to be attentive to and, and to be concerned about.
0: While the ties between Russia and Nicaragua are concerning, as a result of Moscow's war in Ukraine and the onset of harsh economic sanctions, has Russia's capability to support its partners in the Western Hemisphere decreased? We expect to see this partnership weakening as Russia is forced to conserve resources.
1: That's a great question, Ryan. And certainly, with the the rhetoric coming out of both Managua and, and Moscow, one that I think many of us who are worried about security in, in the Western Hemisphere are asking. My sense is that since the Russians are bogged down in Ukraine right now, and especially because their resources are being constrained by sanctions, it's hard for me to see them funding any major development projects in in Nicaragua, per se, that would help to keep the Ortegas afloat. matter of fact, they couldn't really even do that back in 2008. I also really, for the same reason, don't see them selling a lot of new arms on, on credit to the Nicaraguans. They couldn't even do that with Venezuela, for example nor do I really see them deploying significant military forces in the country. They really don't have the infrastructure, and you know, frankly, they, they need the military forces in Ukraine. They're trying to scrap up everything they can from other places in the world. What I do fully expect, however, is that Russia will continue to use the Ortegas to project a limited, call it low-cost threat from Nicaragua as individual opportunities present themselves to do so and within the limits of controlling the escalation risk of that.
0: In addition to Russia, Ortega has cultivated relationships with a variety of other autocrats, both within the Western Hemisphere in the case of Cuba and Venezuela, and beyond when it comes to the People's Republic of China, and now increasingly Iran. Turning first to China, which Nicaragua recognized only at the end of 2021, ending decades of support for Taiwan, we've seen Beijing's willingness to help countries skirt international sanctions, as the U.S. and allies seek to increase pressure on Ortega and his allies, What should policymakers be watching for in the newly minted China-Nicaragua relationship?
1: Right. First of all, I think it's important to note that there are significant differences between Ortega's, as you point out, relatively new relationship with China And his engagement with Iran, Cuba, Venezuela, and and other actors. I would argue that Ortega actually was very reluctant in recognizing the PRC in December 2021, and really only did so after the U.S. and Europe were increasingly pressuring his regime over the rigged November elections, and he was risking losing access to U.S. markets and, and U.S. investments. So for me, it's interesting with respect to China that when Ortega first came to power back in 1979, he actually waited six years before he recognized him the PRC, only doing so in 1985. Now, when Ortega was voted out of office by Violeta Chamorro in 1990, uh, Chamorro restored relations with Taiwan almost instantly. But then when Ortega came back into power, as we talked about before in 2007, once again, he waited over 14 years before he abandoned uh, the Taiwan regime again. So for many outside observers, um, and arguably uh, many in the PRC, uh, what that gave the appearance of was that uh, Daniel Ortega and Rosario Murillo were, were basically trying to get everything that they could out of Taiwan before they would betray the relationship. And so I would argue that the PRC has currently done a pretty lukewarm response to Ortega. And what that suggests is that they have not let that go unnoticed. So, for example, when you contrast how the PRC has reacted with Nicaragua to what it did after Costa Rica flipped to uh, the PRC in 2007, or when Panama flipped in 2017, when El Salvador and the Dominican Republic flipped in in 2018, in all of those cases, you had the PRC signing multiple memorandum of, of understanding with big symbolic gifts, many times stadiums. So by contrast, with Nicaragua, it's ironic because the PRC, actually, they gave uh, the Ortegas some additional COVID vaccines. They gave the promise of a pretty small amount of, of public housing, but, but that was pretty much it. As a matter of fact, for me, the dog that, that didn't bark, beyond the fact that you uh, actually did not have a, a Confucius Institute uh, set up in, in Managua either yet, but, but really, again, to use that Sherlock Holmes reference, the dog that didn't bark was the Nicaragua Canal. So just before the 2021 election, as you may recall, Wang Jing, who was the essentially sponsor on the Chinese side of the old Nicaragua Canal proposal, he suddenly reappeared praising the Ortegas and basically reminding everyone who would listen that his company, HKND, still had the legal authorization to build the canal if anyone happened to be interested. So when Nicaragua actually recognized the PRC, which in the thinking of a lot of people, was one of the enabling conditions for the canal actually to, to go forward with Chinese money. It was notable that since that time, there's been no talk at all of, of the canal, not by Jing, not by anybody else. As a matter of fact, there has not been talk about any major infrastructure project, not the development of Brito, nothing. Now, in recent weeks, uh, to be fair, the PRC did announce that it was going to buy 90%, and I would emphasize 90% and not 100%, of the products that Nicaragua previously had sold to to Taiwan. Um, they also announced that in one way or another, there would be a new Nicaragua PRC free trade agreement, although what that means is, is not really clear. But again, what I would emphasize is that by comparison to the way that the PRC has rewarded other regimes that would have recognized it, I would say it is pretty clear that the Xi government is is sending a not-so-subtle message that there's a price to be paid for the Ortegas, having waited for 14 years before recognizing the PRC. And while that relationship may go forward in important ways in the future, right now the Xi regime is is arguably kind of hanging the Ortegas out to dry a little bit.
0: In comparison to Russia and China, Iran has played a far more muted, though nevertheless growing role in the hemisphere. How would you expect relations between Nicaragua and Iran to evolve in the coming years?
1: That's a great question. So with respect to Iran, that nation really has never historically had a strong relationship with Nicaragua, not in trade form or or other form. So, as you recall, uh, after Daniel Ortega returned to power in 2007, then Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad did reach out to Nicaragua, just in the same way that Ahmadinejad was engaging with Venezuela and Bolivia, and even to a certain extent with with Ecuador and and other anti-U.S. governments in, in the region. However, the projects that Iran talked about with Nicaragua never really came to fruition. As a matter of fact, there was a a famous story in in which an Iranian engineering survey team that had gone to look at a project in, in Monkey Point, Nicaragua, was run out of town by suspicious locals. Now... Under Ahmadinejad's successor, Hassan Rouhani, of course, you recall Iran overall adopted a much lower profile in the region, which meant that it wasn't doing high-profile trips not to Venezuela, not to Nicaragua, not to really any part of, of the region. However, under Iran's current president, Ibrahim Raisi, of course, we can note that with the escalating tensions with the United States and the end to the Jikpoa nuclear accord, Iran has begun to re-engage. Now, as you know, that re-engagement uh, started with Venezuela. Uh, it's included things that we've discussed uh, quite a bit. Uh, you know, drone sales, oil swaps, Iran refinery repairs for Venezuela in receiving a Venezuelan gold in, in the process. So now, as part of that evolving relationship, it appears that Rouhani and Iran have uh, also now begun to return to engage with with Nicaragua. So this May, uh, one of the key elements of that re-engagement, uh, Iran's oil minister, Javad Aouji, had visited Minagua. Uh, he reportedly signed agreements to buy some Nicaraguan beef and, and apparently to supply Nicaragua some oil. Uh, now, there's also some reference to Iran building Nicaragua its own refinery. It was going to be called uh, Bolivar's Supreme Dream. But the reality is that Nicaragua doesn't really have any oil to refine, um, nor do they have any gold or other things to really pay Iran with for the refinery like Venezuela has gold to pay Iran with. So it's difficult to see that project happening. So, so I think Iran will continue to engage in, in low-level ways, and you'll continue to see Iran using that just as Russia uses that. But I really don't see the relationship really taking on significant legs in, in economic
0: terms. The United States has long taken for granted a hemisphere which, if not supportive, has at least been largely aligned with U.S. policy and commitments to democracy. The growing web of alliances cultivated by the Ortega Murillo government showcase that this calculus is in fact changing. Coupled with a Maduro regime that is openly hostile to U.S. interest, and there is a growing need for the United States to understand the hemisphere as a realm of great power competition. As dictators increasingly appear to be operating from a shared playbook, For how to take and also for how to hold power, there seems to be a need to craft an opposing set of strategies for democracy defenders. Based on the case of Nicaragua, where we've witnessed intense pressure and systematic human rights abuses, what lessons would you identify need to be incorporated into such a democratic playbook?
1: Ryan, that's a great question. So, for me, the first key step is to recognize the anti-democratic playbook and the risks that it presents to the region. My perception is that the otherwise very qualified people in the Biden administration's Latin America team are looking for opportunities to find common cause with the new flock of leftist leaders across the region who proclaim their intention to fight against corruption and give voice to long marginalized groups. The danger, in my opinion, is that we underestimate the risks that are posed by the anti-democratic elements within otherwise democratic movements, um, and especially those elements that seek to exploit popular mobilization and who seek to weaponize protests for their own ends. I would also argue that it's important for us to recognize how the magnitude of the political shift that's going on in the region creates serious problems in our own ability as a country to push back against any single regime like the Ortegas in, in Nicaragua. For example, when I was on the State Department policy planning staff a couple of years ago under Secretary Pompeo, we arguably had the advantage of a region which was filled with governments that were much more willing to work with us to call out or, or isolate and, and pressure anti-democratic actors like like Cuba, Venezuela, and, and Nicaragua. Uh, at the same time, for example, we had an, an OAS under uh, Luis Almagro, which was arguably a lot more disposed than it is today to put democracy ahead of making everyone you know, feel welcome at the party, so to speak, as we saw occur uh, exactly the opposite way with the, uh, the Summit of the Americas. I remember we had coalitions of the willing, such as the Lima Group, that we could work with to put that type of pressure on and to add weight and moral authority to that collective voice to, to restore democracy. We increasingly are seeing governments, uh, whether it's the new Petro regime in Colombia, although he has not yet made clear his, his policy, uh, but Honduras, Mexico, Argentina, Peru, soon very likely Brazil, just to ma- name a few, who have been notably reluctant to call a dictator a dictator or, or even in some cases to condemn and sanction Russia for its invasion of, of Ukraine. doesn't The short term, what I would argue, is that what we really have to do is, is really recognize that we have to play a strategy of, of the possible, a strategy of what I'd call damage limitation until we can get the hemisphere to a better place. And, and I think we'll eventually get there. But it's a hard problem. I certainly don't have all the answers, but I would say that there are a few principles that I believe are key here. And maybe the most important one for me is that, for me, we cannot let up in our discourse to call out the authoritarian regimes, even if we, the U.S., are imperfect ourselves. Specifically, for me we cannot let up on sanctions even if we don't believe that those sanctions are, are going to produce a transition to democracy in countries like nicaragua or venezuela or cuba and we can't do so because of the message that letting up would send to others so for example for me those who say that we should not let up on sanctions because they're they're not working or then we should all just get along really misses the point especially when people say that uh, we should perhaps negotiate with the wrongdoers because they may have something that we want like like oil or hostages in, in venezuela For me, that sends a very dangerous message that we should avoid to existing authoritarian countries um, and others, frankly, who are thinking about, in the future, hijacking their own democracies. Because for me, it tells them that if they can only kill and repress their way to absolute power, like we've seen happen in, in Venezuela and Nicaragua, that the U.S. will eventually come to terms with them. Now, I also believe that beyond that, we also need to look for fuller and more creative ways to exercise the options that are available to us under legislation such as the RENASER Act, and perhaps even um, take legislation forward which would go even farther. I'm talking about things like broadened sanctions, I'm talking about uh, limiting Nicaragua's access to U.S. markets through CAFTA-DR, I'm, I'm talking about finding other ways to limit Nicaraguan investment through uh, other people interested in doing business uh, with the U.S. financial system, much like we did in, in Venezuela. And then beyond that, beyond Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba, I would say that also it's not just those states that we need to restore to democracy, but we also need to be relatively attentive to other leaders who are essentially looking to you know, polarize or sabotage democracy. For me, if you remember, and I saw Venezuela go you know, through a long, painful 20-year process. It would have been a lot easier to have stopped this process in Venezuela back in 2002 during the general strike or in 2004 during the recall referendum while the opposition still had some basis of real power. And I would apply that same lesson to other states that are in the precipice today. Again, by the time you have a situation like that of the Ortegas in Nicaragua or Maduro in Venezuela, I would argue it's almost too late. So, you know, part of it is being vigilant to where the other countries in the region now at risk are going and being there to help them succeed. And in that group, frankly, I would also draw attention to countries that I would categorize as as democratic friends that have recently been beset by very real problems. Weaponized protests, as as we saw, against the Cortizo regime in Panama, against the, the Lazo regime in Ecuador, and making sure that we help them through their difficult challenge. And in doing so, we don't forget opportunities to gain wisdom from and cooperate with other democratic partners, such as the European Union, such as Japan, such as South Korea, such as Taiwan, and such as Australia. Because frankly, for me, each of them actually do have a stake, although not part of of the region geographically. They have a stake through their companies. They have a stake through their political principles. And oftentimes we forget that we're not going it alone, but we have a range of friends that also can provide leverage and opportunities as we fight to pressure the non-democrats and to help democracy survive in the region.
0: Evan, is there something that we did not cover? Anything else that you would like to highlight or add
1: Ryan, thanks for that. As you know, I was actually forced out of Nicaragua in 2016 in in what was really for me a very unpleasant confrontation with Nicaraguan government agents at the time. And so for me this week, when I read about what had happened with Nicaraguan police uh, taking uh, Bishop Rolando Alvarez away, it really took me back to to a very dark time for me when in my own situation, Nicaraguan officials without name badges were telling me to get in their car. And frankly, I didn't think at that moment that they were going to take me to the airport. So For me, this is really personal. And at the same time, because I also had a privilege of being part of that that team, and at least in some small way of of working to restore democracy at Venezuela and Nicaragua, obviously unsuccessfully while I was at the State Department, I do understand that sanctions may not be enough. But once again, for me, that is not a reason to negotiate with dictators, um, whether it's for oil or hostages or because we just want to try something different. And then finally, I believe that what we do and say as a nation matters. I, I grew up in the 80s. Maybe that's just part of, of the way I, I learned that uh, you know life and politics should be. But over the long term, I believe that what differentiates us as, as a nation and the appeal of our system from other opportunistic actors like like the PRC is what we stand for, even if sometimes we're imperfect or, or inconsistent. But the key point for me thus is that it's critical that we not break faith with the Nicaraguan people and, and go on to the next crisis. It, it's critical that we don't send the message to others who look to hijack their own democracies, that if they only kill and repress their way to absolute power, the U.S. will eventually come to terms you know, with them. So I think there's a real validity in staying the course and in showing the region that we stand for something important.
0: Dr. Evan Ellis, Research Professor of Latin American Studies at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute and a non-resident senior associate with the America's program here at CSIS, thanks for joining us today on 35 West. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us.
1: Thank you, Ryan. It was a real pleasure to be part of the program.
0: For you, thank you for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.